Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. We have read all the health tech news so you don't have to. All right, we have got with us a very special guest this week. We have Sam Shaw. Um, Sam, welcome. How are you doing? How's your week been? Well, great to join you. My week has been super fascinating. Everything from inspections, media, doing some challenge around justifying, testing in the community, uh, and avoiding dogs in Regent's Park. <laughs> An eclectic week indeed. What have you been doing in the media this week, Sam? Uh, well, so uh, uh, what happened is there was a bit of an inquiry about some you know, online consultations and uh, lots of media people in touch around what does this mean and what's going on with regulators and changing the, the, the goalposts around online consultations, so giving, giving comments. That was one. And then the other was the BBC, all the, uh, all the press around dentistry. So that was the other, the other bit. Mm, wow. And for those that, I mean, I'd be surprised if they don't know you, but for those that don't know you, give us a rundown. All the things that make up Sam Shah. I'm a Chief Medical Strategy Officer at Newman. I do a little bit in academia with uh, UCL Global Business School and uh, a bit of clinical work in dentistry. I kept it really simple, really, really short today. <laughs> that is quite short. That is quite short. But as I say, more than qualified to talk about health tech news. So um, I also have Justin Hugh with me today from the Somex team, and we are going to talk about a few different bits and bobs, a bit of funding stuff, ChatGPT, Woolworths, uh, and the Maven Clinic is what we're going to talk about today. So uh, without further ado, let's get into the first story. So our first story this week, the other funding gap, this is from Sifted, uh, and they say it's not just unicorns that are leaving Europe. Promising early stage deep tech founders increasingly feel that they can't build something big in Europe. Super interesting, this. And yeah, I suppose, yeah, not 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 an unusual take, but um, Sam, you've had a read of this. What, what do you think is going on here? This was timely, if I think about where we are in terms of the whole climate. And I don't think it's just about the financial climate we're in. Um, and this has been bubbling for a while. I don't think this is a new issue, but I think it's now coming to the surface. So if we think about the context of Europe, we've got lots of different health systems. We've got those that are more social insurance, so uh, socially funded, if you like, a bit like France probably being the biggest one, and those that are perhaps more close to a private market, more similar to the US. So the systems are fundamentally different. And the appetite for adoption of innovation, health tech, med tech is very different across all of those countries. Like, you know, you, you, I'm sure all of you have spoken to many tech founders out there that have got the most amazing ideas. So there's no shortage of ideation. The problem is that innovation adoption. And if you're a savvy VC and you're thinking about what do I fund, where, why, and how, and how difficult it's going to be, this is the problem. And I, I sort of looked at this in quite a bit of detail around, is this a new problem? No, I don't think it is. I think what's new about it is the appetite to fund and take that risk knowing that healthcare, health tech and med tech regulation across Europe is still not harmonized. It's kind of one problem. The second is, though, who is going to pay for this stuff once it's going to be on ideation stage? Take a place like France. If I've got an amazing digital health tech innovation of some kind and I go into that system, the appetite to fund it is really variable. It's, a, it's such a social system. People won't want to pay out of pocket. And then are insurance funders going to pay for things there? And then does the health tech regulation in that environment, especially when we think about novel technology, does it really match up? So will VCs invest in this? And is it easier to go to a market, for example, places like the Middle East at the moment, the Gulf region, in comparison, are super easy to work in because they've got lots of organizations helping organizations, helping founders get through. So yeah, big, big, big picture, I, I get the impression that um, the appetite for risk amongst VCs to play with the regulations in Europe when they're still so up and down are difficult. Um, but, but, you know, but, you know, you've spoken to just as many founders, probably probably more than I have. Are you, are you getting a sense that people are finding this difficult they're, and they're getting this pushback from VCs? I am. And I... <sighs> I've been, you know, I was on a panel last night at the NIA, the, the launch of the new fellows, and I talked about a little bit my journey through and how I've seen the health tech world develop. And I 
qualified as a junior doctor in 2010, which is 13 years ago. And in that time, I've seen a lot to be positive about in that I think we, we had a panel of really young entrepreneurs and uh, they were medical students, junior doctors, um, and they d- had these side gigs that they were turning into businesses and technologies. And there was this optimism that 13 years ago, I couldn't have done that panel because things like Tony's Clinical Entrepreneur Program and, and these accelerators, the NI edition, I thought like there are these things from within healthcare now that we're, be- we're being able to foster innovation from within healthcare. And I think that was something to be incredibly pleased about. But there's this simultaneous reality going on both from, I think, a workforce perspective and then thinking about big scaling tech companies perspective in that whilst you've got all this optimism about, okay, these really innovative clinicians doing really innovative things, you've also got a workforce crisis where actually their day job is incredibly difficult. Now, actually, when it comes to scaling tech companies, yes, we can be, to your point, we can be incredibly optimistic that there are so many ideas and that there are so many potential solutions to lots of problems. But actually, there is a reality that for technology, it needs a lot of capital and it then needs a market to go into. It then needs to be sold at enough scale that that business can eventually become profitable and pay those investors back. Because in the short term, that's going to make that a successful business. And in the long term, that's going to affect sentiment in the market in order for those LPs to invest in fund two and fund three and fund even more technologies. And so I think there's there's two simultaneous things playing out at the same time here almost of this optimism that there's lots going on, but actually uh, the substance of the exits and the big problems being solved and that stepwise change. Look, look at what we're seeing. We're about to talk about it. AI and chat GPT, the stepwise change that we have now entered an AI reality in some worlds and we play in marketing as well. So we're certainly entering an AI reality now in marketing. It's changed. It's a stepwise change. Things are really different. In my 13 years in health tech, I've seen incremental change and I've seen a lot at a certain end, but we're missing something. <laughs> and like, it feels like this European thing hasn't been solved. I have to agree with you because uh, that's, yeah, it's a difficult thing. If I go back to when I was in NHS England, in the centre, and you know, trying to push this digital development of the system, the ecosystem, we had some great health tech founders across the system and yeah. the evolution of accelerators, AHSNs, even industry support to, to make this work. And then we came against the reality, and especially now you really see the reality play out across Europe. We've got a workforce crisis across Europe that is pushing the cost of healthcare up because we don't have enough healthcare workforce, but also we need to pay healthcare workforce more. It's kind of problem one. Problem two, disjointed healthcare regulation when we get into the deepest part of technology. And then that means people take the path of lethal resistance. They get frictionless technology. So let's go for the easy things, more online consultations, more telehealth, more simple health tech, as, as I sort of think of it. But the things that solve the real problems using data, using quantum, maybe even, dare I say it, distributed ledger technology, or even the, the sort of nuances of, of AI, those things have still not really got traction. And you kind of look at why. Well, they require human capital investment. They require business change investment. They require a whole commissioning vehicle to allow this to happen, which is different to how we do things now. We get to the climate of the system whether it's Germany, UK, France, any other part of the system, they're cash-strapped. Especially the UK, this moment in time, when we see 20% cuts for commissioning-type organisations, we're going to see it in the dominant market in England, the NHS, which is amazing. It's an amazing place to be. But in that environment, are those deep-tech, complex health-tech, med-tech founders going to get the, the, the support they need, the buy-in they need in this climate, It doesn't seem all that likely unless, unless government industry comes together and creates a separate mechanism of providing that resourcing for them, buying those services, which is separate to the service lines. And if we do that, we can accelerate it, not just in the UK, but across Europe. But at the moment, 
the two are mixed together. And until that changes, I can see a complex environment. And then why would VCs fund something knowing that they've got a life cycle of two years? And, and if we look at a recent sort of you know sad story around a, a great startup, there was a great healthcare communication startup that's been around for a while. Uh, it, it's been trying to, to evolve. It, it was doing a good thing. It was almost designed to be sort of WhatsApp of healthcare and a few others. And there was a framework the NHS put together. And if you look at that now, only two of those, I think, have survived. And so this story from Sifted resonates completely, but collectively, we need a way of changing it. We need to change the way in which health tech is funded. We need to change the appetite for VCs. We need to change the healthcare regulation environment. I think you're right, that funding bit. I don't know what the answer is, and I hate I hate doing this of like just reframing the problem and talking about the problem and not a fixed solution. But you're right because there's something not clicking, which is that I I found this actually last night. You know, when I was chatting to a few people, that there are you know when I think back to all the all the problems at the front line that I thought could be solved by various different things and different projects, and there were people doing this at a very local level. There were people doing this to solve problems using not too complex tech. They weren't building AI machine learning things um, back then with like any no code solutions because it was impossible. It'd be a hell of a hell of an undertaking. But people were solving local problems in local ways with local solutions. And that was doing a lot of the heavy lifting. It just strikes me at the minute that there's a mismatch. And maybe over time, as as technology gets cheaper and no-code AI solutions come in and no-code machine learning and the average person can now build a website, that wasn't a thing 20 years ago. Perhaps when the average person can just build a quick ML solution, Maybe that's what's going to do it because it's not. It's not. We haven't got the market size for VC funding to get payback. I don't feel for so many of the little problems that need to be solved in a local way, and I think that's maybe it. If we're thinking about a solution, like is it time? Is it technology getting cheaper? Is it far more like smaller horses for smaller courses that don't need to exit for a billion and actually can be customized locally for different places. Is that it? I don't know. But but haven't you not just hit the nail on the head there around that piece around the exit valuations? Because we've come from a climate over the last 10 years where every where no one's interested unless it's a billion pound exit. You know, most VCs don't don't speak to me about it. Is there a, do we have to look at this? Do we have to look at this problem in a new way? Do we have to create a sort of test innovation landing zone that is a mixture of industry, healthcare services, uh, med tech partners, pharma and funders together. And we have to also accept that the exit might be at a lower valuation in general, but there will be a more a greater likelihood of exit. And do we change the rules of the game? And do we have to push for the change of the rules of the game? And maybe that will help improve liquidity, improve uh, the adoption. Right. All of those things. Well, yeah, and, and even does it need to be an exit? What is is a profitable business not okay? Like, is a profitable business and a dividend for the founder every year not okay? Like, could we just do could we just do viable projects that are profitable? D- does everyone need a bill? Like traditional businesses? I mean, is that a thing anymore? Traditional businesses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, profit. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I, I don't know, man. Like, I, you know, the, the VC business model is the VC business model. And frankly, you know, they have LPs paying them to invest their money to 10x, 100x that money. That is the model. So we can't be annoyed at them for doing that. They they are just doing their business model and they've decided to invest in healthcare. So it's it, our problem is not with them. Our problem is what what are we, what funding mechanism do we, or what economic like thing do we need to develop what economic system do we need to develop that actually and encourage that actually starts paying this back and actually you know speaking to some of the clinical entrepreneurs on tony's scheme and that kind of thing that aren't necessary well in fact even the panel i did actually i remember i asked them like what drives you and you know no one's going to stand up there and say a billion pound exit no one's actually going to say that but actually i think i don't think they thought that either like they that what it was very personal to them like you might know Malone, who who founded Black and Brown Skin. He wrote that Mind the Gap book for dermatology on black skin. Um, Paulina, who runs Dharma Health, like personalization for for contraception and men, who's doing stuff in mental health. Like it was personal to them. It, they wanted to make that impact. They weren't talking about enormous, massive scale and international expansion to exit. They weren't 
actually talking about that. They seemingly were happy solving that problem for their community. And that seems to be the energy. Like that's, that there's something in there as a solution for me of like, that seems viable because as soon as we put the pressure on these companies to scale, it's when they fall over and uh, I don't know. And, and, and I wonder how many um, of great colleagues across the system say Tony's program is amazing. He's created an entire cadre of clinical entrepreneurs. The other schemes out there, accelerators have helped support lots of uh, startups in, in healthcare and health tech and some of industry. You know, the industry ones, Novartis, GE, there's a few yeah. others out there that have done, done some of it. And I wonder how many of all of these startups and founders, when they're in front of, when they're pitching to investors, have to spin the same story, which is, oh, we're going to achieve this amazing lifetime value to cost of acquisition ratio. We're going to achieve this kind of scale in this volume, in, in this time period. We're going to get international in like this many years. And it's that same, you know, they almost have to because that is the playbook of getting investment versus the reality, which is they just want to do really good things, make a difference to people's lives and improve outcomes. And, and okay, and they might also want to be profitable in the process. And those two things at the moment don't necessarily always seem to reconcile. Agreed. Agreed. Um, a new economic modelling system needs to be found. Perhaps Innovate UK and grant funding, SBRI, these things are intended to kickstart the system, aren't they, in a, in a not too dissimilar way. But the, the non-equity funding side of things is interesting. But um, yes, if anyone does have an answer for that, do let me know. <laughs> Very interested to keep exploring that. Glad we solved that one, Sam. On to story number two. Right, the next problem we're solving, the NHS. That's the problem we're solving next. Uh, the Telegraph has written a story titled, uh, like so, the next challenge for ChatGPT, question mark to save the NHS. So ChatGPT has potential in diagnosis, in clinical trials and analyzing patient data, the Telegraph says. And the Telegraph asks, could it help our ailing health service? Sam, what do you reckon? I uh, had this very discussion last night. So I was at dinner last night with a bunch of uh, founders, lots of HR people type people from across the health system and some really interesting um, individuals that have worked across health tech businesses, health businesses, and have been very involved in resourcing. What was fascinating in that discussion last night, uh, and I felt, I felt very out of place because there was a view amongst everyone there, oh, we, a lot of people there, trust ChatGPT more than they, they say, more than they would uh, their, their GP or other clinician. And it was really interesting hearing this from people. And I don't know if they really would trust them or, or not, but uh, it, it was fascinating for a bunch of people who were involved in the people business that this is where they were going. And their view was that, oh, this is going to sort of revolutionize healthcare. This is this is their view, this, this kind of raw view. And I don't think it's an accident that it's come out this week. I mean, I think it's it, you know, it's not that surprising that these stories are fairly recent, especially given the climate we've got of workforce difficulties in the health service and globally. But what, what do I think about this? Well, I've been watching ChatGPT from a number of sectors, from the creative sector. I've been watching it in marketing comms uh, as a result of probably things that you do, I do, and others do. And then I've been looking at it from a law tech perspective and then health tech and comparing across these areas. What's the degree of maturity for ChatGPT, any one of these sectors, and why has it got further or not? And it comes back to risk. Uh, uh, risk appetite in healthcare is probably at its lowest compared to other sectors, rightly so, because there's some pretty serious clinical decisions we have to all make, right? And on the other sectors, like even in law, they have to be very careful. I'll give you the example. I was looking at the use of ChatGPT in law, and what you find is... Yeah, people do use it. But because of the way ChatGPT works, it makes up references. So there's a really good example where it just made up a case. It made up a case that doesn't exist. If you read this, you'd have assumed, oh, this is absolutely accurate. It's referencing the right case law. I can use this in a submission. And, I was, and then you examine it and look for it. And this case doesn't exist, it's artificial. And uh, I did this the other day with some public health uh, trainees I was speaking to uh, early this week. 
We did the same exercise and it made up a reference and it, so from evidence. The evidence didn't exist. It completely, chat GPT made up this evidence that, that actually wasn't real evidence to justify this particular thing. So it, chat GPT would be great for some things. I don't think for us in healthcare, it's at the point where we've got the license to be that creative, where it can make stuff up, right? And uh, it probably still needs a bit of human intervention to sense check, reality check, evidence check that, that, that it's actually real. But could it make a difference? I think it could. I think we're at a stage where chat GPT could help us with some business processes. So not the delivery of healthcare, but some of the business of healthcare, it probably could in the same way it can in the creative sector. I do like the fact that ChatGPT has a human-like interaction. So let's take something like psychotherapy or behavior change. Could there be a role for it in helping facilitate some of those non-healthcare decision-making type interactions for people? I think it probably could do some of those with the right guardrails. But the bit that I think we need to really solve is where it's decision making and where we get into the device territory. Uh, and yeah, that's a bit where I'm worried. Have you used it yet? Have you been have you been using it for anything? Hugh and Jess, how much do you want to admit to here about how much we've used it at Summit? <laughs> so really honestly, yeah, we we have used it a lot. And I think we often where we found that it's been really helpful is you know when Everyone says the best ideas are not found sat at your desk. Sometimes you do. By the very nature of your job, you are going to be at times sat at your desk trying to pull an idea from nowhere. And it, we all know it's easier to edit something than start from scratch. And it's been really helpful in sparking some inspiration, some thoughts. I've not used it to craft content, for example, um, or anything like that. But where I'm like, I want to use this word, but this word isn't quite working for me. And traditionally, I might go to a thesaurus or something like that. I found that ChatGPT has been far more helpful than that. It is like having a chat to a team member or something like that. Or even if we've been brainstorming, you know, we've kind of used it as an additional team member. So I think it's been really useful in that way or giving you pointers to like go and look in this direction or that direction or whatever, or consider it in this way. Um, but I think absolutely what you're saying there about it's it could be really useful from the business functioning side of things. I think that the challenge on the healthcare side is very much around risk, but also around that regulation piece. And I think regulation is something that healthcare also traditionally really struggles with, particularly around technology. We still haven't got that right yet. And largely because of the evolution of technology and the pace at which, at which it is evolving. And for something like an AI algorithm is where it struggled the most because AI algorithms generally evolve over time. That's how they work. They learn. And so I think we're so far away from being able to wholeheartedly and confidently regulate something like ChatGPT, where, as I say, we're struggling to regulate far more simple technologies, that actually I don't think until we address that and fix that, people are going to have the confidence to be able to use it in a more clinical setting. But we also know there's a huge admin burden in the NHS. So there must be space to use this kind of technology and others like it to reduce some of that burden, even if it's collating, you know, or simplifying some information or whatever it might be. I think there is a role there for that. But I think it's going to be longer until we can confidently use it in clinical care from the regulatory perspective, but also because, as you rightly say, it does just make stuff up. Um, and there is a famous, infamous commentator on regulation who, uh, in the health tech space, who frequently joins the uh, chat GPT in medicine debate to say, you know, would you feel comfortable being personally responsible for the decision that chat gpt made or the outcome of chat gpt as a clinician if you would go ahead and use it but by and large there are not going to be very many clinicians that would hang their hat on that that said i think there are other technologies that are similar but are more have been created very specifically for um 
clinical use. So Medwise, for example, is using NLP to really help with clinical understanding of certain conditions. So rather than we all know that clinicians in consultations or even outside of consultations will refer to Google because it's quick, it's easy, you want to find information fast. But we also know that any Google search returns the most optimized and most clicked on content rather than the most accurate. But what they're doing is ultimately using algorithms to take approved and accredited sources of information and delivering it in a more digestible way for clinical teams. And I think that is probably where our energy should be focused if we're talking much more clinically. I love the fact that you referred to it as a sort of like another team member, because I really like the idea. It's like another team member, another sounding board. And and, and that example of Medwise is great because that's almost where they've created a safe environment with some really nice guardrails. Like the ontology they draw on is one that we would all use in the real clinical world. And they've done it to make that whole process of garnering the evidence and presenting in a way that's much more consumable for the individual in a way, almost like some of these engines do. And I, and, I, and I think what's going to happen is players like Medwise and others in the sector will almost drive the standards for the use of some of these tools in the clinical setting. They'll, it'll almost come from the sector that this is what we think is acceptable. If it does this and works in this way, it can play. If not, it's not part of the club. And I, and I, I really do hope that Medwise and other partners end up coming up with some standards because... That, that is a great example of where it could make a difference. One thing I love to talk about here, actually, is the word trust. So um, one thing that we actually heard last night uh, at the NIA event, Professor Bola Awalabi, she did a keynote speech talking about trust now being a social determinant of health. Because if you're trusting in the clinician person entity giving you advice, you are more likely to adhere. And I think that's a really, really, really interesting point about what you said initially, Sam, about ChatGPT, this phenomenon that people are more willing to trust it because of the way that it is communicating. So you can have a textbook with a table with text in Times New Roman that nobody is interested in going through to find out what it is they should do. But this strange little robot that can equally give you a perfectly written rap about your name and your company and where you like to go on holiday and it'll write you a song and a poem and a, and a hip hop style, whatever. Like, But it'll also like now give you've built trust with it by doing these funny little things like you, you, and you, you trust what it's saying. And then all of a sudden, because it's communicating a certain way, it's trusted. Now I think that's super interesting in the game that we're in, in communications and how adherence and how all these things that are super important. And we talk about user experience of applications and, and things and technologies that people are building like UX, UI and building trust and stickiness and daily active use and all these things, I think all this is merging into like this conversation about like, why on earth are people trusting this thing? Well, actually, I think it's the way it communicates. I think it's literally the way it will speak to you. And I think that is incredibly important where trust is a social determinant of health. I think that that has to be taken forwards into so many other technologies of like, I wonder if we could just communicate a bit better what our message is here. Let's not just put a an action on a screen Let's actually have some narrative and treat this person like a person. And actually, like, there's a way of doing that that I think can build trust. I think that's been super interesting. And, and look, we, we've come from a place where everything became really transactional, where healthcare became transactional. It became just about the clinical need, ignoring the emotional and the practical part of it. Super transactional, very kind of here, push message to you, letter, these are the things you need to do. Whereas that's not how society interacts. We interact in a way that's more natural, more human-like. And anything that is going to be like more human-like, more emotion in there, more real, we probably have an affinity to over all of this very sort of process, tick box, algorithmic stuff. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that companies that are direct-to-consumer that are using this sort of natural language it sort of resonates more with the population. And I certainly see it. If I think about the different organizations I work with, some of the ones you work with, those that are more 
consumer-centric, citizen-centric, they naturally have a different style of language communicating to those that are very much more kind of healthcare orientated. And, and for me, it's a classic kind of, if we look at the UK and the NHS, there's a certain style and language about it. But if we look at the most successful campaigns to get the population to do things, it's talk to people, engage with them in the way that they like to be engaged with, right? It's the way the language that makes sense to them. If it's stop smoking, breast cancer street screening, prostate cancer screening, uh, and you know, anti-obesity, weight management, any of these things, talk to people in a way that they like with language that makes sense to them. And I think that's the bit where ChatGPT really has got right. Mm. I think it's funny you say that though, because that being able to actually communicate with people and understand what they want and have, I guess, difficult conversations in a way that different people are going to understand is something that healthcare, the whole ecosystem struggles with so much. And, you know, I've worked in lots of different parts of healthcare from pharma all the way through to NHS trusts. And everyone has that problem. No one has really solved that issue of being able to genuinely build a rapport with a person, not a patient, but a person. And I think that is why so many campaigns around things like obesity and cancer, like lots of them fall flat. And there are lots of great ones as well. It should be said, you know, not all of them are terrible, but I think as an industry, it's something we struggle with so much. But it's funny because I think it comes back again to risk aversion which we were talking about related to why people don't want to bring ChatGPT probably into a more clinical space is there is a lower tolerance of risk. And I think where, you know, you are dealing with life and death in healthcare and that should absolutely be respected. But I think there is space to relax some of those guardrails a little bit in the way that we interact as people and as human beings. And I think if we can do that, Back to James's point, we build trust. We are we can communicate with different people from different backgrounds in a way that they understand and their health outcomes are going to improve. Um, and so if we have tools that help us to do that, then that is great because, yes, we absolutely expect that of every other part of our lives. So why can we not nail it in healthcare? You're, I, I, you're spot on. And certainly that bit around you know, some of those campaigns and why they do and don't work. Like this is where I think we get market leaders who come from other parts of the system. We'll talk about it a bit later, but you know, there are some companies out there doing great things for citizens, for people. And I think the reason they're so good is people relate to them. It's like going for them. It's like going shopping or going online to their favorite site. It, It works for them in exactly that way. Not like talking to clinicians that might speak in a completely different language. But does this not add, a, add, you know, an extra degree of risk to the whole um, you know, risk aversion trust debate if we're getting to a point where people are more can can feel like that information that's provided to them by ChatGPT or something like that because it's in a conversational way they can trust more than their clinician. That you know, if the human behind the um, machine can't, you know, relax their uh, relax their ability to talk to people in a way that, that they can relate to. And that drives people to relate more to the to the AI or the chat, you know, large language module. Then, what's stopping something else popping up that's outside of the health space um, or not quite so regulated or doesn't have those trust rails being equally trustworthy to those people and equally more dangerous? It's sort of an extension of the the kind of diseases have the best SEO on Google. You're not necessarily getting reliable information from Google just because you're Googling it, you, you, you think you have cancer because cancer has the best SEO and shows up in Google. And, you know, that's what people trust now. So they go and do the Dr. Google because they don't necessarily trust the kind of quite complicated way that clinicians speak to them. And now they're going to go to chat GPT and, or an alternative that hallucinates a result to them um, that makes them panic and you know, go and immediately consult a doctor, hopefully. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? Because we've talked here about how people and clinicians use Google. Google's not regulated. There's no regulation around the use of Google. I mean, it's, you know, potentially frowned upon, but it's used. 
And But I guess in that use of it, the clinician is taking the risk and liability themselves, right? So I go on and I search, I take a decision, but it's still me personally liable for the treatment I provide a patient based on my ingestion of that info. Whereas what would happen if citizen, patient, person directly ingested that recommendation themselves? Who's responsible for that bit of it? Now, okay, we could say advertising standards agency have a little bit of say-so over some regulation, MHRA a little bit around that as well, and some other regulators, and, and, and it does exist. But it comes up to this balance. I mean, I think he's right. Like there is this piece that people do do this searching, and who is the per- you know what is it that is protecting people when they when they're making these uses? And we, on the one side, we don't want to stifle innovation in the ecosystem. On the other side, probably recognise there needs to be some degree of protection. But where, what's the middle ground, and will there ever be a middle ground? So we haven't solved everything with this one. Few remaining questions, but. Um... <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there. I'm gonna leave it so there, I think but... the answer to the headline is, is it going to save the NHS? Might help a bit. Might help a bit. Might help a lot. We'll see. We'll see. But we need an open mind. All right, our next story today. Woolworths owned Healthy Life launches telehealth service. Now, I thoroughly enjoyed the write-up of this in Pigeon this week, Hugh. Um and it was this. Who doesn't have fond memories of Woolworth's pick and mix? Remember that in the UK? Uh, Pigeon used to love queuing up for a bag of fizzy cola bottles, flying saucers, sherbet lemons, GP referral letters, and medical certificates. Um, pick and mix indeed. Um, Sam, you've had a read of this. What do you think? Well, it brought back lots of memories of going to Woolworths and and buying random things that I probably will never use again. They probably still have sitting around uh, in my house somewhere <laughs> that I uh, begrudge losing. But uh, for that, that aside, I, I think this goes back to consumerization of healthcare and brands that people trust, feel comfortable with, that they can use uh, and, and use in a way to get accessible healthcare in some form. And I do think this blended model is probably where we're heading. And there will be some people that have a view that it should be completely a publicly funded health system and only a thing in the UK or or elsewhere in the world, which is similar to the NHS, that delivers everyone's healthcare needs. Yeah, in an ideal world, that'd be perfect. And and I'm fully supportive of that. But on the other side, we've got the reality. We've got a mixed ecosystem of independent, private and NHS healthcare working alongside each other. And I think we're going to see more of this. We're going to see more and more players, some of which are coming from other sectors, some of which are coming, spin out from the health system themselves, going to be providing this sort of thing. So is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What do I think is going to happen? I think it's a great thing. I think it's a great thing that there's confidence in the health system that another player is coming in to provide another component of, of telehealth. So that is positive. I think we'll probably see some consolidation over time. It's not going to stay standalone forever. We're going to see a bit of consolidation that will happen at some point in time in this market. But the good thing is, is it's meeting some form of need or demand. There will be a degree of need or demand that is at the moment unmet. This is another channel to meet it. Will it be there forever? Probably not. But for the moment in time, when people have a massive need, when access and weights to traditional health service are at an all-time high, I don't think we can begrudge the population to wanting to access things. And if someone else is fulfilling that need in a safe way, that's a great thing. So overall, I think it's a good thing. And I've been having this debate for the last two weeks with some other healthcare commentators out there over whether this form of access is a good thing or not. And there's some people who have a very strong view that almost to the extent, and I haven't quite said this, but my paraphrase of it is, is private independent sector is bad, is almost the notion they've come to. The NHS is almost seen to be this perfect space. And for someone like me that works in both parts of the system, uh, I actually think we need both to work alongside each other. It's not one is good and one is bad. They both have positives and negatives about them. And we need both of them to coexist and serve the population's needs together. Where I think this takes us, though, is it takes us and drives us to a move where 
The citizen needs to own their health data so they can interact and access any service they want so the clinician can make the best decision for them based on the citizen's data as it belongs to them. It also takes us to a place where we don't need to be so protectionist about the NHS or the private sector, except they work together. But I think it's a great story that another player is coming into the market. Well, I think, I th- I, yeah, I completely agree with you in terms of the NHS and the private sector working well together. And, you know, we've just spent a long time talking about lots of problems in the NHS. And it's well known that the NHS is brilliant if you're dying. But if you're just a bit sick or you've got a rash, but you're not, it's not life or death, it's probably like, you get lost in the system, you're not prioritised and you're unlikely to get the outcome whether that you want or maybe is going to be the best outcome for you. And so I think where NHS services can be supplemented by private healthcare services to extract the, whether it's the worried well or whether it's just the lower level health conditions that can be screened out and can be dealt with elsewhere that allows the NHS to focus on solving its problems and on the people who need it most, then great. Um, And I think also people are becoming increasingly, I guess, wanting the same service from healthcare that they expect of all other parts of their life as well. And our public health system is just not set up for that. And so I think that also has to kind of be put back onto individuals themselves. That if you want that, then that's kind of on you. And it's okay to want those things totally. But go and take care of that for yourself and don't create extra burden in the NHS where actually it, it can't afford and doesn't have the resource to be able to, to support that. That, that You touched on a word there that I've been toying with for a little while now, and it's burden. And I hear this like every day. Like, so I hear this thing where, oh, private clinicians are a burden on the NHS. And I challenge it. I'm like, why? They're like, well, they see patients. And when the patients can't carry with private service, they end up back in the NHS. I'm like, but surely that's the patient's right to use the NHS. That's a given right for them to use it. If the NHS can't fulfill their needs, they've gone to the private sector to get some validation. They now need something. So surely they should be able to go back into the NHS for whatever their needs are, if that's what they need to do. Equally, you see the other side of it. I get told, oh, people are getting tests done. I'm like, yeah, it's giving them reassurance. They're they're worried about something. They should be able to get a test done if they want. If they want to walk into like Tesco's or the future Woolworths and get a test, actually, that's that's if that helps them and that makes them able to make a more informed decision, isn't that po- a positive thing? But there's the opposite side of it. We've also got to make sure dare I say it, I have to go there, that the regulation is right, right? We've got to make sure that the things that people can buy are right so that people are seen by qualified people that do the right thing. But I'm with you on this. I I think people's lives are citizen consumer centric. I can shop online. I can go online, pretty much buy anything, do my banking, do all these other things. Of course, healthcare is a bit different. But from a citizen's point of view, it's another service they're accessing. And as you say, like that that thing about actually data should be owned by the individual. There's so much health data that exists that sits outside of your patient record. Um, and so much there that actually could provide such a great insight into what would be the right care for you that it just it just makes sense. And I do understand that logistically there are some real challenges to getting a solution in place that really does enable that but I think also there is a mistrust of patients for owning their own data and why it's theirs like why can you not trust them with information about themselves and 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 surely we should trust our patients right like I had this argument with an inspector uh two weeks ago so there's there's an inspector of a service that I that I work with and the inspector was like oh if a patient goes online they might not tell you the truth and I was like, what? So you want me to second guess every single patient that comes online and therefore you want me to write to their GP every time and the GP has to give me their entire record before I make a clinical decision in an online service. And this just really signaled to me that the regulators are so far behind where the public are that they literally don't understand what the public needs and what society needs and some of the problems out there. And that was one regulator. There was another regulator I dealt with last week, right? This other regulator comes along and he says, 
oh, but this patient that comes along, they might be trying to gain the system to get access to medication. I'm like, yeah, they might be. But that's about risk balance, right? And I've got to understand what they say. And then I gave them the counter that. I said, when I worked on Harley Street in private practice, a patient could come in and tell me whatever they wanted, and I was still going to treat them. And I might not know everything, but I'm making a decision about them based on what they tell me. And as clinicians and people, we kind of get a rapport. We understand if they do or they don't. We ask the right questions. And we ask the right questions online. We make a risk-based decision. And um, we really need the regulators on the one side to make sure they've got the right standards in place. But on the other side, we need them to wake up to recognize digital healthcare, online services, work in a different way. The population... By and large, are good people. They tell us the right the things we need to know if we ask in the right way and use language that makes sense to them. So we do need the system change. We can't assume that people are telling aren't telling us the truth. And we should give them the data. If we give systems the data, it'll make our lives easier. So in conclusion, I would say that it is positive that well, actually, it's similar to what we talked about before about funding models. I think it is positive that people are thinking differently about how healthcare can and will be delivered. And new players coming in that access a different part of the ecosystem or from a different part of the ecosystem that are doing something slightly differently might improve access, might improve outcomes, might do quite a lot. But unless we try, we will never know. And so it seems that um, the people in the room are encouraging of that and counter narratives obviously exist uh, that you can go and find out so there we go on to our final story so our final story today the maven clinic has bought a fellow virtual women's health company natal uh, so maven has said that the acquisition of london-based natal will accelerate its expansion into the UK and Europe. So here we go. Um, another way of combating the scale problem. Um, find someone and buy it and actually do a bit of consolidation, a bit of M&A. Um, Jess, you've had a read of this. What do you think? So I actually think this story is incredibly interesting because it actually joins together a lot of the different points we've touched on today in our discussions. We talk about funding models, the fact there's not enough money in the NHS to deal with all problems. The NHS is great if you're dying, but otherwise less so. And I have to say, so I went to Wired earlier this week and one of the keynotes I watched was uh, Maven Clinic CEO, Kate Ryder, where she announced this acquisition. And um, much like with uh, Professor Bole's keynote last night, I've been fangirling so hard all week over this um, because it's, it's a very interesting proposition. And I think it really echoed something that we heard from um, Marigula at Pepe when we spoke to her at our last uh, Sonex Health Tech Talks up at Google HQ, where she was ultimately saying that a lot of the problem with women's healthcare and the challenges that women face in their care are not always life and death. And ultimately, health systems can't afford to pay for everything. And so we have to look to alternative models of care and models of funding, which is why for the likes of the Maven Clinic, for Natal and for Pepe, they have chosen this employer route where ultimately they are providing women's and family health services through employers and corporates. And so what Maven Clinic does is ultimately they are trying to address those gaps, particularly around reproductive and maternal care that women and families are falling through all around the world. So they provide support around um, clinical, financial and emotional help for fertility, pregnancy, postpartum, menopause, and more broadly in kind of family planning, but very much across each of those three elements, the clinical, financial and emotional side talking about you know access we're talking about trust and one of the things that came through last night was about health health inequity and one of the things that I'm often quite I have reservations about with private solutions or solutions that are clearly targeted at more affluent demographics is cool this is great this is going to really help people who want to optimize their health and and have the money to be able to do so 
But actually, the people who would really benefit from this are going to miss out because they're not going to be able to afford to pay for it. And and that is one of the the big reasons why Maven has also gone through employers, because it means that it actually opens up the access to this care. And and what they do really specifically is that they have a really wide range of services that they provide, but all of their practitioners are right across a really diverse the entire diverse spectrum and it it puts the choice it gives people the choice of who they want to see so the type of practitioner but who that person is and so if you are a gay couple for example looking to adopt a child you can very specifically select for a practitioner who has experience or has their own lived experience in the LGBTQ plus space to take you through perhaps the administrative and financial side of what that adoption process might look like. But one of the really interesting things she talked about was what actually their service is doing for black women. And we are, of course, no stranger to the really dire statistics around outcomes for black women and women of colour, for maternity and and birth. And what they were saying was, or what Kate was saying was that they, through the service, they've actually seen increased rates of black women accessing their services, which has meant obviously they're able to access better care. But not just that, black women are more likely to utilise doulas for example, and doulas have been shown to have better birth outcomes. So what that is actually doing is really directly tackling that inequality. And it's not just for the people who can afford it, because it's being funded by employers. But it's really specifically giving people the support they need based on who they are as an individual person, and the likely experience that they might have. And, you know, I I'm going to throw some statistics out there because I love to do that. And, you know, women's health, one of my favorite topics. But she was saying that, you know, miscarriage occurs in one in five pregnancies. And of those one in five, one in three can be expected to experience um, PTSD. Um, On average, one round of IVF costs £5,000. And that is entirely dependent on where you live and the NHS support available. One in 10 women who worked through menopause left a job because of the symptoms. And yet, four out of five women who went to speak to a doctor about their menopause symptoms left untreated. I think all of those things, whilst shocking, are just reflective of 51% of the entire global population and very much the experiences that I talk about with my friends and my family and and people around me every day. And I think whilst it's really confronting to see that, um, it's also equally not surprising. And, you know, she flashed up on screen some quotes from women that had really motivated her of their personal experiences. And again, so confronting, but also just what comes up in conversation every day, every week. And for a solution that genuinely feels like it's focused around not just helping people who can afford care but people to access the right care for them got me really excited so i i I share your excitement on this topic area uh i I think it's a smart move by maven and uh if we really i I think you're spot on around the inequalities and the inequity and access point here because We've designed society, especially in the Western world, around a way in which it was designed around a patriarchal male society. And everything is almost geared up, whether it's the access to services and systems, structures of families, the services you make available, how they're funded, where they are, who works in them, how people connect, is entirely designed around one half of the population and has been for quite some time. I know I work in a men's health company dealing with a different (laughs) set of problems, but in, in the same way, there are this whole set of stigmas attached to issues that women face in health that aren't dealt with, whether it is uh, infertility, whether it is around reproductive health, whether it happens to be around the menopause, whether it happens to be around um, period pain. All of these things are problems that women in society face for which it almost excludes them from the workplace because of some of these things that there aren't tangible solutions to help women. Now, 
we're losing uh, time when we've got a workforce crisis in every sector. Mm-hmm. We are losing out on a whole section of the workforce because we have not made it easier to access help, support in a way that is non-stigmatized. And I think this is a super smart move. You've got a very passionate founder in Layla. Layla is a super CEO, right? And like mm-hmm. creating a company that has is, is really trying to deal with a problem that that we do need to solve as society. Uh, and then we've got Maven Clinic that is backing it in a way that it is really demonstrating that this is the way to go. And smart move with a company that is targeting employers to and effectively the economic benefit to employers from having a retained workforce very smart move and I hope others follow Mm. yeah you're totally right and it is it's an economic problem it's not just a women's problem or a society problem it's an economic problem and just to you know to build on what you were saying there about you know the the system in which we all exist being quite patriarchal quite is probably an understatement there but very much patriarchal and and built in a very certain way and I have to shout out Jess on our team here she has kicked off our very first Somex book club and um, I think her and I are the only ones reading the book but I can really recommend a book called Unwell Woman and and it's I haven't enjoyed reading it I'm going to be really honest about that it's been very very hard to read but what it's done is really mapped out the history of women's experience of healthcare and how we've ended up where we are and why we feel the way we do when we access healthcare and and unpicking some of those experiences we feel now but ultimately all the different things that have happened through history right from back way back when when Hippocrates was figuring out his oath um all the different points along the way that have contributed to the paradigm we exist in now and so if anyone is interested in understanding that in more detail and and not just writing off as oh you know it's man's well blah 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 blah, um I really do recommend going and reading it because even for me as a woman who has experienced her own health her whole life it was quite mind-blowing and I really just feel like the shutters have gone up and I I understand now why we are where we are. I think that's really important in when you're facing a problem that's incredibly frustrating. I guess having that understanding, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem, but I guess having that context is somewhat of a relief. It doesn't feel like it's just you. Um, And yeah, I think men, women, whatever you identify as, I would recommend reading that book because it is excellent and enlightening and it really underpins a lot of the work that you know even I expect you you'll be doing at at Newman as you say you know men's health is an incredibly important issue for us to be tackling to an entirely separate set of problems but actually it's all still interlinked um and you know it's still very heavily stigmatized for various different reasons and you know I think it's so important that we find way to be able to tackle those problems in an accessible way and have these discussions about why that is and alternative ways of accessing the right support. I think that point you made there about different ways of accessing the support, because a, a campaign I was really impressed with was in, um, it was in Brazil and they were, they and the problem they have there is a lot of women were experiencing thrush but couldn't access treatment. It was stigmatised, there were challenges in accessing treatment. Uh, it was really difficult. And what, what emerged then was an amazing blend of using social media marketing to get out messages out there to destigmatize the issue and responsive health services designed around the needs of young women. Uh, and, and it was a great example where communications marketing came hand in hand with the provision of online services. It's just, it's just great to see. And I think organizations like this partnership between Maven and Natal really, I think, play to that, to, to being so centric around women's needs. Yeah, I think it's brilliant what they're doing, as you say, Sam. And it's really good to see that actually we're also being able to see services that have had success elsewhere around the world being rolled out well, not rolled out, but amplified in the UK and, and, you know, the UK being a really good example of where we are making a difference. We are, we are thinking about this differently to, to improve experiences in healthcare and outcomes. Well, thank you, everybody. Um, it's been heck of an episode, this. I think a lot of passion, 
a lot of problems that we've now solved the entire health tech community but also still some questions remain so there's still a reason to come back next week so thank you to everybody for listening thank you to sam for joining us um and yeah if anybody wants to grab any of the links to the stories talked about today you can head to healthtechpigeon.com and grab those you can subscribe to the newsletter that will hit your inbox every single sunday so sam jess hugh thank you for joining me and for all of the listeners thank you too see you next week